Welcome to The Beauty of Conflict, a podcast about how to deal with conflict at work, at home, and everywhere else in your life. I'm Chris Marie. And I'm Susan. We run a company called Thrive, and we specialize in conflict resolution, communication, and building strong, thriving teams and relationships. Conflict shows up in our lives in so many ways. Most people, unfortunately, are not very good at handling conflict. Most people have never been taught the right tools for dealing with conflict. And then it leads to unnecessary friction, arguments, passive aggressive emails, tears, hurtful comments, stuckness, all kinds of things we don't want. We're on a mission to change all of that. We spent the last 20 years teaching our clients how to handle conflict in a whole new way. We're here to show you that conflict doesn't have to be scary and overwhelming. With the right tools, you can turn a moment of conflict into a moment of reinvention. Conflict can pave the way into a beautiful new system at work, a new way of leading your team, a new way of parenting, a new chapter of your marriage where you feel more connected than ever before. Conflict can lead to beautiful things. Well, we are excited to have Peter Cullen here with us today. And Peter, when we were working with him, was a general manager at the Microsoft Corporation, and he was head of Trustworthy Computing. Now, he's since gone on to do many other things. But Peter, we want to welcome you here today to talk to us about the beauty of conflict. Thank you. Great to be with you. (laughs) Yes. Now, can you tell us about your role and the team and the unique aspect your team played at the Microsoft Corporation? Yeah, it was, um, I think, unique to Microsoft, but I suspect is something that lots of organizations experience. And and that is that, uh, you know, I I ran eight teams that each individually were responsible for a strategic direction of the company, but had to manage by uh, influence. Um, In other (laughs) words, they didn't really have direct authority. And, you know, this caused a a couple of interesting challenges for them. One was that the leaders in particular of this org saw pain points in the three to five year out horizon, and they became kind of frustrated that it was difficult for the organization to see the same respective pain points. So for them, it created internal conflict as well. And mm. that probably bubbled over into, you know, their dealings with other teams who, you know, they were trying to not only do certain things, but to compete for all of the other priorities that those teams had to do that. So there was, I'll call it at least a two-dimensional opportunity for conflict to uh, to get created. So Peter, even just to even say what your team, like what was the mission of Trustworthy Computing and how were you trying to help the customers at Microsoft as well as then influence the teams within Microsoft sure. to help Well, Trustworthy Computing, the formation of it was um, Bill Gates back in 2003 realized that for, I'll call it the full potential of computing to be realized, it had to be viewed as trustworthy. It had to be secure, private, then came to also include things like accessibility and all sorts of other geopolitical types of sorts of issues. But, you know, his view or his vision at that point was not just that Microsoft had to be viewed as trustworthy, but that computing generally had to be trustworthy. In other words, it, it was important that everybody, you know, everything down, the, I'll call it the computing stack, you know, acted in a way that uh, promoted trust or trustworthiness. So you can think about kind of an example of even making something accessible by default for somebody with a physical disability. You know, it requires, you know, not just the different parts of Microsoft from the operating system to the application, like Office, for example, to Act or Xbox, 
but it required, you know, the content providers. If you're watching a movie, then, you know, whether it was, you know, uh, closed captioned or whether it, it was able to identify an image and play a, a um, verbal or an audio recant for somebody with a visual disability, all of this stuff had to be integrated for it to be viewed as, as trustworthy and credible. So, you know, my team worked with responding to what was either external risks and or external environmental expectations and work to kind of help Microsoft develop uh, the technology that met that standard. Okay. So if somebody was having a hard time, you wanted to make all the providers that built software for Microsoft make it accessible for somebody who couldn't see or couldn't hear or had a physical disability. So if you can think about it in today's world, you know, we, we all have a phone, which is really not really a phone. It's a platform of which a phone is what, but an application. But you think about all the other apps that we use, just in the, the small, simple area of accessibility, they, they, they all have to work in sync. Otherwise, you know, it's a bad experience or somebody just can't get access to it. And that that scenario extends to how secure the data is and um, how private the technology is actually uh, functioning relative to the sensitivity of people's personal information. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you have a question? Well, I, you know, I was just thinking about, because I know on a big level, security and protection and that trustworthy piece, trying to keep the data safe and stuff, that gets a lot of press and time, especially these days. But I imagine because of some of the populations that you may be working with that aren't, you know, there may only be a small percentage of people that this is going to impact, but because it's such a vital and critical role that these people have access because of a disability or some other issues, you've really got to be able to influence People, the rest of the business may not be that big a deal, but I, I would imagine that would be where you might bump between departments in Microsoft, like, you know, Office 365, 365 <laughs> you know, would has got to be secure, you know, that security and data piece, I can get that one. But maybe somebody on that team is frustrated that they have to actually do something because of a one or 2% of the population. I imagine that's another whole issue. Well, the accessibility is a perfect example about that. So the team that ran that, you know, often ran into this perception of, well, you know, okay, I know it's it's important that we have it, but relative to all my priorities, it is only one or two percent of the population. But if you start to think about that same technology for somebody with a, a physical visual disability is the same technology that enables the increasingly aging population. <laughs> right. Us. I got them. Suddenly the market potential changes. And if you add on to that, that the mainstreaming of, of students and technology into the classroom where, you know, we no longer have special ed or special classes all kids with all abilities are put together. And now the technology really does have to enable that full suite of things. So it starts to then say, well, it actually affects the public sector procurement policy that if you can't provide technology that you're selling to a school district, well, then you're just not going to sell that. So there's a real yeah. well, a broadening of audience, but also quite frankly, a revenue situation. But you know, what I observed with all of my leaders was they had this incredible ability to see the world in this complexity, yet we're, you know, stymied or frustrated by not being able to get the rest of the world to see that. And, and which, you know, as, as I mentioned, sort of created a lot of internal conflict. Yeah, I can imagine. And when you did bring us in way back when, <laughs> what was the impetus? Like what was happening and what were you struggling with? What was the situation? Well, there were, I think, two core challenges. One is, you know, based on some of the work I'd done previously, I just a huge 
believer that you know effective teams were high performing teams and so not only did these eight sort of specific business units having to effectively team with other parts of the company they actually had to team with each other because mm-hmm. for example the same solution that was um you know going to solve part a portion of the accessibility problem was actually being developed in another one of the business units around policy development or risk management mm-hmm. so you know when you think of uh, your own sort of, you know, world of sphere as a vertical and don't necessarily realize both the power of uh, teaming with other people or the necessity of it, you nicely avoid conflict. But of course, <laughs> you know, the minute that you have to kind of work together, you're asking people to, you know, to stop and take a, a, a do more work to make that effective. So, I mean, I think about a high performing teams in that context is both a you know, a breadth and a depth problem. So that was the original the original goal of, of bringing the two of you in. Mm-hmm. It is true when people, like, if I can just work in my little silo, it looks very efficient, but I miss all the synergies across with my peers and the larger impact we can have. It's almost like a race car that has to slow down around the turns to go fast on the straightaways. People are so resistant to slowing down to get aligned, you know, horizontally on the team. But when they do, they can have such a greater impact. Oh, my goodness, yes. And, I, you know, at, at a place like Microsoft, I think, you know, part of this is cultural and it stems from, you know, the old software uh, engineering credence is, you know, take no dependencies. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're managing by influence and your success is determined upon that, you just have to do things in a fundamentally different way and both create tension in a way, but then manage, you know, the other side of that, which at times can be conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what was your perspective on conflict prior to bringing us in? <laughs> uh, you know, to be frank and honest about it, it was, you know, avoid it. Um, <laughs> I'm a, you know, I, as you know, I'm just a nice Canadian and we apologize for everything. Um, <laughs> and personally, this is kind of, you know, where I had a huge realization, too, is that my my kind of normal way of doing things is is when, you know, something gets really, 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 you know, I'm tense about it. I tend to move away from it and, and avoid it, keep quiet, as opposed to saying something that uh, might, you know, communicate my actually how frustrated or how emotional I am about things. So I think I probably subconsciously did that personally, but I suspect that by extension, I just, you know, start it's, when you start from a premise that everybody should just get along, then you don't sort of see both the power of conflict, but also, quite frankly, the need to kind of manage it because left unchecked, you know, conflict uh, can turn pretty ugly pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes underground. People talk about each other rather than yeah. to each other. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for you, after you had done some work with us, I mean, what were the key takeaways that you got then and maybe still apply for yourself? Yeah, and- I think the largest one was the interconnectedness of some of the skills that you, that you helped us with. So, you know, even the basic one of, of um, you know, storytelling or, or, you know, reacting to a story is a way of, of early conflict management. And I don't think I would have thought about it that way until we've done that work with you. So in other words, checking out a story is a great way to stop, you know, individuals from doing what they normally do, which is I see data, I process data, and I make up stuff about that data. And often it's, off it's if it's a negative story, well, I'm going to make up negative stuff, which then sort of sort of feeds the cycle of conflict. And I hadn't really sort of thought about the cross application of some of the skills that you that you helped us with. But that that's one that immediately comes to mind. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we don't recognize that when we experience something, we're always creating stories. And we tend to think our stories are right. So we wouldn't think to check them out because of course I'm right. That means you don't respect me. And so I'm going to treat you that way <laughs> as opposed to saying, hey, I want to check. Was it your intention to disrespect me or not? Whatever the issue is or to interrupt my assumption Mm -hmm. and find out, is the story I'm telling myself actually what's happening over there with you? Well, I I didn't, I don't think I actually really thought about it in this concrete terms until this conversation, but but in a way, the discipline of checking that assumption, you know, even as individuals, in a way, it's a it's a conflict interrupter with an audience of one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. You know? yeah. Because we can spend a lot of time oh. making up being very self-righteous or suffering in our story because we've never checked it out. So when we go to, wait a minute, what is the story I'm telling myself? Is it true? Does it, is it absolutely true? Mm-hmm. And those are great ways to interrupt it inside of myself and then to take it to the next level and actually go check it out with another person. Yeah. Is a game changer. Is yes. Well, it, it also seems that uh, I'm speaking personally, but I'm kind of imagining that other people are like this. But our patterns are influenced by some of our personal relationships as well. And you know, uh, for me, I, I am I would get very very frustrated with you know, uh, for example, a, a frustrating conversation with elderly parents, but would bury that feeling. So in a way, that I'm adding to that internal conflict. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm aware that I'm consciously choosing not to check out that story, but in a strange sort of way, that's just exasperating the internal conflict. So, you know, if that's going on for me in some of my personal relationships, the chances are that I'm going to be less effective at practicing that in, you know, maybe less intense or less emotional conversations at work, but left unchecked, they can turn pretty emotional pretty quickly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, especially if you're repressing, you know, what you're feeling with your, like I'm imagining with your aging parents, there's a frustration and that energy is building up and it's got to come out somewhere. So no wonder if you then take that energy to work, it's going to, a little match could ignite it. <laughs> Somebody's going to get it. Yeah. And, <laughs> Does that fit? <laughs> you know, if I think back to the, the, the kind of the, the, the handful of situations that, you know, caused me the most internal personal pain in a work environment, they were invariably ones where I did not stop and do that kind of check on the assumption and it left it spinning. And either you know, either I inadvertently said something that I didn't mean and just caused more conflict or I, I repressed it. And, it, you know, it was a, it was a damaging uh, impact on the relationship with, in some cases, uh, that still remains. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So was there any particular... I know one of the things that stood out for me in working with you guys uh, when we did was how, I mean, one thing, your team really could kind of have great debate. intellectual debate about something. And I, I remember at times it would be, we I think we had a couple of times it would be like, maybe you guys are all agreeing. We don't, <laughs> we're not really sure. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. in, oh um, my goodness. I, <laughs> I, I, I was blessed with people that were not afraid to speak up. Yeah. <laughs> And so sometimes it was hard to know, was everybody, at what point do you stop that and say, how bought in are you? And I think we did introduce you guys to the thumbs thing. Thumbs up means you're all in, thumbs to the side, not thumbs down. And I think that was a pretty important tool for you because I think sometimes your team, you may not have known whether they were in full agreement with you or not. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah, the passive aggressive and sometimes not even very passive. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, it, it's true. And I, I do recall the, the one situation you're talking about where, you know, surprise, surprise, my leadership team was not in full agreement. And, um, you know, that's when you've kind of got a, I learned a very valuable lesson there that, you know, you've really only, you know, when it's in front of the, the rest of your large group and they're all watching this train wreck happen with some amount of glee, you've, only, you've got kind of a couple of options there. You can either, you know, accelerate the train wreck or, um, which is, you know, certainly some might term that's not conflict avoidance. <laughs> or, or you, you know, you say, wow, I just have to make a deliberate in some respects, conflict avoidance right now and, and take it offline. And uh, I, I remember that situation of, of, of having to kind of make that, that choice on the fly without even being totally, totally aware of it. Uh, so it, it maybe that conflict avoidance at that time was a good thing. So, you know, it, 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 being, being, I think, aware of the situation is probably the, the most important thing. And that's a very, very difficult thing for people to do in, in a heightened emotional state. You know, my memory, though, for, of that event, Peter, was, you know, there you were. And it really was like you were confronted by your own, some of your own team members challenging what you thought you guys had all agreed on. Can I just even set up the scene for the people that oh. are listening? So we had worked with your leadership team, had come up with some organizational clarity. And there you were, you know, a team of eight or so of you rolling, nine of you, I guess, rolling out the clarity in front of the entire organization, which was, you know, pretty big. <laughs> and, you know, everybody, we thought the whole leadership team was, this is before we taught you the thumbs up, thumbs sideways and thumbs down. And one of your team members, when you went to say something was like, I disagree. I don't think that's what we, you know, that's our purpose, or I think it was the core purpose. And, it was a showstopper for all of us. So I just but, wanted to set that stage. But what I wanted to comment on was you were saying, you know, you kind of went to your conflict avoider style. I would have said my memory of you was that you you were actually willing to be vulnerable mm -hmm. and acknowledge, wait a minute, this was not what I was expecting. <laughs> you know, And I see we we are not aligned yet. So I actually remember you being more real and more real and actually in that vulnerability got like, OK, I guess we're going to have to have these conversations right here and now. And in some respects, that required a great deal of curiosity on your part to be willing to kind of stand in that feeling of like, whoa, this was not what I thought was going to happen. And I think had a pretty powerful impact in the long run in terms of the buy-in that you got, not just from, probably more from the organization at that point, because the conversation became pretty real right there. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, two kind of a macro point on that is that one of the things that I, I came to become more aware of is, was that, you know, a conflict management tool can be something like showing your vulnerability. You know, the old proverbial dog lies on its back to show its belly saying, you know, look, if you must, if you must go to my throat, but I'm, you know, you're yeah. doing your own. I think that's really, really healthy in a way. But I think it, it did it did send a very powerful message to the rest of the org is, hey, you know what? Uh, we're watching a conflict take place right in front of us. We got front row seats to this. And, um, and it's actually okay to be open, uh, vulnerable, and to to say, hey, you know, things aren't quite the way that, that, that presumably it was planned to be. And that's okay. It's okay to be open. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you did get input from the larger organization. Then we re-met with the leadership team. And when you did roll it out, there was a lot more, because the whole organization had been a part of that initial discussion, I think there was a lot more buy-in. And you did get, you were clear whether we really did hash out the different opinions when we met 
more deeply with the leadership team. So I think it's stuck it, it, more. It's true, but it, it's interesting that you should kind of remember or that you reminded me that, you know, we did we did the thumbs up, thumbs down, some sideways stuff afterwards, because in some respects it would have been super to have had that beforehand for the simple reason that, you know, that one little episode, although not intended the way it ended up, I mean, it cost us a, a significant amount of time and effort to have to kind of redraw that. So by not getting alignment, mm-hmm. not having the tools to get alignment and or deal with any conflict, it created a you know pretty substantial amount of, of unnecessary work. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this happens to leaders all the time, because I think what happened is we were going to have like a pre-meeting before the organization, but there was, I think leaders tend to assume, not just you, but tend to assume, oh, we, you know, head nods, we've got people on board. And a lot of times as people marinate on things, or maybe they didn't feel, you know, brave enough to say it in the meeting because they just hadn't had enough time and it kind of percolates and then squirts out. So I think it's, this is an important, sometimes we think we're being efficient when we're like, okay, let's just go ahead and have the meeting and talk about this clarity versus really, we want to make sure we're all on board. Is there anything else? Because I think that just slowing down a little bit more, creating that alignment, because you, you know, it's clear. If you don't, it can create a lot more rework in the long run. Well, and I think the key piece here too, is especially with the team that's pretty good at debate and talking about ideas and to really do that thumbs up, thumbs sideways, thumbs down, because anything less than that, it can sound, people can even sound like they're agreeing, Mm -hmm. but that actually makes you fully, you're either all in, only partially in or not in at all. And it's very visible in each person. It's pretty quick too. Yeah. And then you can go to this, well, okay, why is your thumb sideways? We got to talk. And you folks got really good about doing that after. Yeah. Tell me where I'm wrong, Peter. No, you're right. But it took practice because in a, in a strange sort of way that thumbs up, thumb towns, that thumbs down forces a declaration. Yes. And, um, <laughs> you know, that was an uncomfortableness for some of my leaders at some points in time that, you know, it's sort of sort of shit or get off the pot type of uh, thing. <laughs> it's exactly it. Is a, it, it does. But it's so it's so very powerful. But I but I think the you know the other interesting element of that is so let's imagine that in this case that the, the, the one of my leaders that decided that you know to not uh, speak up like he did at that meeting you know, the rest of the audience sees that anyway. So if, if it's not a 100% alignment and there's some, you know, nonverbal indication that, you know, I, I'm not saying anything, but I'm really not totally on board, that's in a lot of respects actually more damaging. Yeah, I agree. Because it kind of goes underground and then it's mm-hmm. talked about behind closed doors. People are interpreting it oh. and it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. I think that's why. It's, so as adults, we don't necessarily need to get our way, but we do need to speak up and feel heard and considered. And at least he was in that very public forum <laughs> like to say he disagreed <laughs> yeah. so that uh, things could get cleared up. <laughs> yeah. But it gave it also, if I remember correctly, it also gave a uh, license for other members of the group that were, you know, in this case, seeing it for the first time and, and uh, were having a little challenge to it to also to, to speak up. So it was a Right. Overall, it was a it was a, a great output, I think. Mm-hmm. Although painful, <laughs> I'll ride. <laughs> painful. Yeah. So, Peter, do you notice a difference between how you deal with conflict at home versus at work, like with your spouse or your parents, versus how you show up at the office? Yeah, I, um, yeah. I, I'm much more likely to take 
an avoidance approach with with things. And, but you know, this, this is kind of more at the, when when something is really creating internal conflict for me. What I've learned is that it's it's often a conflict with values and. Um, those are really difficult, uh, I think, to kind of resolve. So, yeah, I definitely tend to avoid values-based conflicts at home. My, you know, experience, unfortunately, there haven't been too many of them. But when I have a, a really escalating conflict, I have had an escalating conflict with somebody at work, it's usually about a values-based thing. So mm-hmm. there, then maybe that's there's a hierarchy of conflict, conflict like <laughs> your experience that you would. Uh, but I, for me, anyways, personally, the values ones are, are the, the toughest ones for, for me to resolve personally, let alone to take some action against it. Well, I think in that type, in those situations where it's a value-based difference, I mean, we have found like one we do a lot of work with couples as well as with in business arenas. And a lot of times when something comes up that's at the core of someone's values or differences in values, you know, the thing we found is if there's a way to sort of step back and just ask the question, one, why is this so important to me right now? And also be willing to step back and really listen. So why is this so important to you? And not stay at that level of right, wrong, right, wrong. And whether in the difference of the value, but to actually dive underneath. I see we have a fundamental difference, but I am curious why what you're saying is so important to you and tell me more. And we found that's the best way through. No, I think you're right. And, I, you know, my own you know experience with this is, uh, but having observed it in others, that, you know, values are, are at least so core to, to me, but they're also very difficult to get clear on what the values are and be articulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, put it out there. And, you know, if, if I think people have gone to the, the work and effort to kind of almost describe in, as if you were communicating, you know, what, what one's values are, it becomes much easier to identify when there's a conflict situation with those values. But when you, when you haven't described them to yourself with clarity, I think that, that that's when you more likely get that, uh, oh my goodness, this is an emotional train wreck happening. <laughs> and those can happen at work, you know, yeah. Clearly, particularly when it you know comes to the way that people either are or perceived to have been treated. Mm-hmm. For yeah. sure. And, and, you know, I think stepping in, if someone can, this is why we actually like sometimes to have what can seem, we encourage leaders not to tell people to take that offline because sometimes it never gets resolved. But the other thing is if people have real deep emotional stuff around something that's coming up, they're really not going to resolve that. And sometimes the team can hold, someone on the team can maybe be able to ask that question. Why is this so important to you? And help me figure out how we can support you, you know, realigning. Because often when two people who are at odds can hear each other talk about why it's so important, something can shift. It's about connecting at a deeper human level that really, if you slow it down and not try to get to a solution. And if you can, <laughs> I think, and if there's a third, somebody else, like the team can hold a container and somebody can reflect back, well, this is what I hear you saying, Peter. And this is, it sounds like, this is why it's so important to you. And Fred or Mary, this is what I hear you saying. And underneath that, it seems like this is really what's going on. Because you're right, Peter, when you bump into those, uh, those situations where you're like, oh, I just can't believe this person. It usually is hard for me to articulate why I think they are so utterly wrong, <laughs> because it's, it is hitting one of my values that I may not even know 
Like, I think it's just, that's the way things should be in the world. How could this person be mm-hmm. so different than me? Oh, and it, I think it also can tend to create a conversation at a, at a, you know, a level down the stack um, as well that we're going to, you know, we're going to yeah. argue about words or argue about, you know, intent of a sentence when, you know, what's really underlying this is, is a core kind of conflict with values. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So now you're ending up, um, you know, having conflict about something which really isn't the point of the conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely is getting underneath because that's the only way you can actually see each other as two humans versus that top layer, which really is not what the conflict's about at all. I think that's what you're no, saying. Yeah, that's- absolutely. You know, in, yeah. a, in, a, in yeah. an ideal state, it requires kind of both being aware of what's going on, but also being a somewhat dispassionate observer about what's going on. Because if you're, if, if you're a dispassionate observer, then you stand a greater chance of saying, wait a sec, there is something going on here and I want to check that out a little bit. Or this has fits into into a kind of a much more damaging level of conflict, which is you know more difficult to recover from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter, this is delightful. Is yes. there are there any final words you like? What's the number one piece of advice you would give other leaders and organizations of dealing with their teams and conflict? Well, I think about the you know the suite of tools that you you know you were able to help us with our team, and then you know thinking about a, a, applying them, they really. So in my team situation where they really had to kind of manage by influence, you want to have a whole breadth of tools in your in your arsenal to kind of make sure the conflict doesn't get um, too escalated. Because, you know, in a case where you are having to man- manage from afar or, or manage by influence, if you get to a point of escalated conflict, that sometimes that creates an irreparable damage. And, you know, your odds of getting that group to do something for you are less, I think. And I think in almost all cases in business now, we're increasingly being asked to manage horizontally, not just vertically. These sorts mm-hmm. of skills, developing them within perhaps the, the proximity of a closer team become invaluable in terms of applying them uh, to your extended teams where you may not have that, uh, that intimacy or that, you know, that frequency of communication, yet you rely on them to, uh, to kind of collectively get the job done and to avoid Avoid conflict, but also make sure that you deal with it. Because I think that, you know, healthy conflict exposed in a productive way can actually illuminate some fantastic breakthrough results. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Peter. Um, yes, this has been great. Well, that was fun to talk to Peter. It again. sure was. It has been a long time. They were one of the, I mean, it was over a decade ago that we worked with them. So it was terrific. But it was kind of neat to kind of remember so many moments in that. And some of the key takeaways from today's session, I thought, Chris Marie, was that uh, one, when we were talking about the situation where they were rolling out their clarity in front of the entire organization and the person who raised their hand to say they didn't <laughs> agree was actually on the team itself. Yeah. I think that was like a very major moment and could have been a disaster. Fortunately, as Peter said, he handled it quite well. Yeah, but it also brought home to us, because clearly we hadn't brought this up with the thumbs up tool yeah. uh, in terms of making sure you have commitment on a team. They were great debaters. They could spend all sorts of times talking about and was talking about something. And it was easy to walk out of a meeting, not really sure, did they agree or disagree? And what exactly did they commit to? So and also, I mean, they had the two days and we were encouraging them, well, let's let's just have a short meeting just to make sure we're all aligned. Oh, no, no, we've got it. And I think so many times we think we're all aligned and just to slow down that a little bit to make sure 
before you announce. (laughs) Well, and I thought what Peter said was quite insightful. Like that, when you do that thumbs up, thumb sideways, thumbs down, you really are revealing yourself. And it can be difficult because there is no way. It's a all in commitment. Yeah, you have to declare. Yeah, you have to declare. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's not really what people are comfortable doing. <laughs> I'm true. So I thought that was, and I think that's true. And this, just to give you a little bit more descriptions on the thumbs tool, it's the idea about when a team, you want the team when they make a decision that even if I disagreed, when we make the decision, my words and actions are aligned with that decision when we walk out the door. So I'm not undermining it saying, oh, well, they, we have to do this because of them. I'm taking ownership of that decision. And one way to do that is everybody that agrees, you do thumbs up. If you've got some reservations, you do thumbs sideways, or if you're like, no way, thumbs down. And then when people declare, you go and ask the people that are thumbs down and thumbs sideways, like what's going on? So you can, it will target your discussions to the people that have the most dissenting opinions. And it it doesn't mean that you all have to, it's not consensus because at the end of the day, it's like, will you fully buy in is really the question. Can you commit to this? And if you can, it's much better to speak up and have that conversation together and figure out how you're going to move that than to have that somebody walk away and do it. Undermine it. Undermine. Yeah. Yes. And the other tool he talked about, which we have a whole chapter in the book, The Beauty of Conflict, Harnessing Your Team's Competitive Advantage, is check out your story. And that is a really simple, concrete tool to get in the habit of doing so that you don't kind of believe these stories and then create divisions between people because you'll just keep reinforcing your own story and you have no idea if that's actually happening for the other Mm -hmm. person. And finally, the piece that I think it kind of goes across both when we're talking to business leaders, and you'll find out later when we're talking to couples, the types of conflicts that are usually the most difficult and uncomfortable and painful are the ones where there are differences in values. And that when that comes up, it can be very emotional and it can be very tricky. But one thing we found that's really powerful is to stop trying to just stay in that right, wrong place and get to some sort of, or solve the problem and step back and get curious about why this person, why their position is so important to them, mm-hmm. what's really going on. And to sometimes even ask myself, wow, I have a lot of energy about this. Why is it so important to me? That that question and that exploration of question without trying to just get to a solution is very powerful, especially when dealing with values-based issues. Yeah. And it's, it's about not rushing to the solution, but really slowing down and taking the time to investigate that. Okay. Okay. Well, this is delightful. Yes. Take care. Bye. Well, thank you for listening to the Beauty of Conflict podcast. If you're dealing with a difficult situation in your life or work, remember every conflict is a chance for you to be vulnerable and curious and find creative solutions that you hadn't considered before and make your situation even better. Beautiful breakthroughs can be born out of conflict. We've seen this happen thousands of times over the last 20 years, and we know this is possible for everyone, including you. We're grateful you listened to this show, and we're rooting for you. And if you enjoyed this show, please tell a few friends and or post a five-star review on iTunes. Your review helps new listeners discover this show. More people listening to this show means less friction and arguing and suffering out in the world. So that's a great thing for everyone. Also, visit our website, thriveinc.com. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-I-N-C.com to read our articles, join our newsletter, buy our books, and learn more about 
the services that we offer. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a peaceful, productive, and beautiful day.